Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Coco Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On! Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, from gripping dramas to lighthearted fare, from unforgettable documentaries and stories told by people who lived them. We saw a lot of great series and documentaries on the small screen this year. We'll each give our list for the best TV of 2023. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hi, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of the Piper Green series of Cozy Mysteries, our infirm friend, Laura Bricker. How you doing, Laura? I'm here, Rebecca. I'm here. <laughs> and finally, our resident Doubting Thomas, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of Strange Arrivals, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hi, Toby. Hi, Rebecca. All right, so Kevin. Yeah. This is Thursday's program. Yes, the last program of 2023. Is it? It is. So what's happening on Monday's show? On Monday, we're going to be looking at the podcast. It's called The Bakersfield Three. And that's the one where three is spelled out T-H-R-E-E. All right. Well, I know how girthy our best podcasts of 2023 were. So I think we should just get right into the best TV of 2023. Should we just start the show now, Kevin? Do it. All right. Let's get it done. There was something for everyone on the TV in 2023. We saw documentaries that dug deep into issues of crime and punishment there were several true stories told in real time by the people in the middle of them. But there were also shows that made us laugh and sometimes made us sing. But which TV shows and documentaries truly stood out? We'll hear from all of the crime writers for the best TV of 2023. Before we begin, much thanks again to Linnea Motter for managing the list of reviews on CrimeWritersOn.com. Every thumbs up and thumbs down review is right there. Go to CrimeWritersOn.com slash reviews. Also, each of our top 10 lists can be found in our show notes. So, Laura, of course, we should start with number 10. What is your number 10 pick for 2023? So my number 10 pick for 2023 is Last Call on Max. Our victim was cut into seven pieces. And 
men were packaged in several different trash bags. This is based on the book from our good friend, Elon Green, and is in the 1990s, you know, hate crimes were on the rise, AIDS crisis had escalated, and a serial killer was preying upon New York City's gay men. This four-part documentary goes into the biases in the criminal justice system at the time and illuminates how the LGBTQ plus community fought to solve the murders and demand fair treatment for queer crime victims. So what I liked about this, it was straightforward in many ways, but there was a really good emphasis put on the victims as told through family and friends, and that would be gay men in New York City during a period of extreme homophobia. It was told in a very compassionate way, and that was something that I liked about this documentary, and that is why it is my number 10 pick. That's my number 10, too, for all the reasons you stated, Laura. Also, I thought this was one of the rare examples where things like reenactments and real interviews were put together in like a really good and compelling and responsible and lovely way. So I'm just going to second everything you said and say that's also why it's my number 10. But Toby, this is your number five. Why is this your number five pick of the year? Because I liked it twice as much as you guys. Um, (laughs) No, I thought I, you know, I agree with everything Laura said. It's told with great compassion. I think you get like these little biographies of these people who ended up as victims are interesting in what it was, you know, sort of like being a, a gay man back during that time. There's also some some very compelling side characters, including um, this woman who I don't know if she played piano and sang or just sang, but at this one bar. For years and years and years, and including during the the AIDS epidemic, and and just talking about just watching all these people she knew die and stuff, it's very affecting. Yeah, so I, I I thought it was really good. So Kevin, let's move on to number nine. You have one of the only three unanimous picks this year. Tell us what was listed on your number nine slot. For number nine, I selected telemarketers. Yay! I worked at CDG for seven years, and I never could have imagined. I was part of the biggest telemarketing scam in American history. So this is the story of an aspiring filmmaker named Sam Lippman Stern, who, as a younger man, worked at this crazy call center called Civic Development Group. One of the co-workers, his name was Pat Pespis, and he was taking video what he thought was just this crazy workplace but years later he realized that the call center had been uh, a front for a kind of scam when they thought that they were collecting money for police charities but the money they were collecting went to the call center and later the fed broke them up for this this scam and they all lost their jobs and went their separate ways they end up coming back together and sam meets up with pat to solve this one question yes The call center was keeping 90% of the donations, but what was going on with the other 10%? Were the things they were saying in the telephone calls, were those true? This was a look at the police uh, fraternal organizations, and they were also taking the money and doing different things with it. And so it thus begins a quixotic adventure for these two guys to expose the scams that the police fraternal organizations were perpetrating upon people who were donating to telemarketers. It's a really goofy look at these guys trying to solve a very big problem. They are hapless and really not able to bring a lot of juice to this kind of investigation, but it's fun watching them try. And again, it was sort of a story that I 
didn't think much about. I certainly get those calls. Now I know what to say when they call. And I never really believed that that, you know, you know what I say when they call. What do you say? I say, because this was also on my list. What I say is, hey, have you seen that really great documentary telemarketers on uh, HBO? That's right. Because that's your number seven. Laura, why did you love it? I, I loved it for everything that Kevin said. It made me so happy because all of a sudden there was a big pause and then they just hung up. So I was like, ha ha, I know who you are and I know what you're doing. I loved it. I loved the character of Pat, the video they had from inside the place. It was just, it was quirky, but it was also, you know, we all get those phone calls and now we know where they're coming from. But then it was also Pat's quest to, you know, hold accountable um, and he goes off and, you know, tries to kind of get some things done and it doesn't go his his way. So I just thought it was a really interesting, like the, the footage from inside is is worth the price of admission. Toby Ball, this was your number four for the year. How come? So this is three episodes, right? I thought the first two were just great in sort of the same way I talked earlier this week about Alabama Astronaut, maybe, and that it benefits from a lack of polish and it's sort of the citizen investigator type thing. And for the first two episodes, they're really kind of in their their world, right? They're in the world. They know how to navigate all this stuff. The third episode, I think, is made much later, and I think it's it's misjudged a little bit. But I thought the first two episodes were so compelling. And, you know, Sam and Pat are both, I think, compelling personalities. And the fact that they're trying to take this on and again, I mean, they're just, they're, this is not something they're trained for, right? They're just kind of feeling their way along. So if you're looking for like best practices of like investigative journalism, this is probably not the place to go. But in terms of two guys who you kind of root for to get to the bottom of things, even if you suspect that maybe they're not going to get all the way to the bottom, the first two episodes I, I found completely compelling. Yeah, it's on my number six for a lot of the same reasons, except that like, why can't two regular dudes be whistleblowers and show us shit, right? And that's the thing about this documentary that I loved. I saw some shit. I learned a lot and I also felt a lot. And I just love telemarketers. I think it's an instant classic. And that's why it hit for me on number six on my list. But here we are now at number eight on our lists. Laura, what did you think was your eighth favorite thing in 2023? My number eight was how to create a sex scandal. My world got turned upside down with all this going on. I've been accused of all kind of crimes. Basically, they said it was supposed to be in a kindergarten teaching them how to do things. Never happened. This was the documentary on Max that followed the story of this little town, Mineola, Texas, which was rocked in 2005 when neighborhood kids came forward with alarming information about a pedophile sex ring that was operating out of a swingers club. And by the way, the swingers club was in this like weird tin shed on the hill, which was also kind of weird. So love shack, Lara. Bang, bang on the door. Yeah, it was something. So the reason that I like this so much, this is something that, by the way, I have recommended to a lot of my defense world colleagues because it's three episodes and it is a really good case study in child suggestibility and how that can play into wrongful convictions. What was really good about this is they had some of the now grown children talking about how it was that they came to report what they did that never actually happened. It is also a study in how not to question children and the importance of having people that are trained in questioning children 
being the ones that are actually talking to children. You have this kind of sheriff's deputy guy, and then you have their foster mother in there interrogating them. So this was just everything that I like um, in terms of something in the criminal justice system that causes me rage, but also that real world child suggestibility was just, I think, what put it on my list. Kevin, what's number eight on your list? My number eight is burden of proof. In 2014, I reached out to an attorney in Williamsburg about whether I could sue my parents uh, for uh, the death of my sister. Now, this is a story about Jennifer Pandos, a teenager who disappeared in the 1980s, and it focuses on her adult brother, Stephen, who to this day thinks his mother and father had something to do with her disappearance and potential murder. So he has been fueled by this suspicion for years based in part on circumstantial evidence, odd demeanor and bad forensics, things like polygraphs, handwriting analysis from someone's non-dominant hand, stuff like that. Now, the, the crime story part is pretty good. We do have some real alternate suspects from the 1980s but this is really about family and steven's distance with his mother he believes that his mother is covering for his father who did something uh with jennifer we even see police officers over the years going after his mother trying to get her to flip but in the end it's possible there's nothing there and they have just spent years estranged for no good reason. Um, This was a documentary eight years in the making, and I thought it was pretty touching as well as an interesting mystery. So for that, I put Burden of Proof at number eight. Okay, let's move to number seven, and I am going to begin with my pick, and I am picking Netflix's Murdoch Murders, A Southern Scandal. This is Howard Murdoch. It's only one point down Moselle Road. I need the police to stand up immediately. Okay, you said 4147 Moselle Road. My wife and child just got bad. Nobody. They're not. You're the one open food. And just a note, I am the host of Netflix's You Can't Make This Up podcast, and we did cover the Murdoch murders, but that has not influenced my pick, I promise. Of course, this is about the fatal drunken boating accident, which turned the spotlight on this powerful South Carolina family. And then, of course, the later double murder, which turned into the trial that everybody looked at. But I really loved this version of the Murdoch murders story more than any other one that I've seen or heard because it's told in large part through the perspective of Paul's former friends and former girlfriend. They were all on the boat. They all saw his escalating pattern of intermittent partner abuse as a teenager. But to me, one of the most interesting aspects of this story through their eyes is this generational rot of this once venerated, once allegedly unimpeachably powerful aristocratic Southern dynastic family. This is like an incredibly American story. And I think this is the part of the Murdoch story that's been very like underutilized and underreported and underlooked at. I will just say this. I think the Alec Murdoch trial was a sham. I think it's a terrible trial. I think he's probably guilty. I don't fucking know, but I think the trial was terrible. I think the American public's reaction to it was horrible. I think it was a show. The whole thing is awful. What's interesting about it to me is this American story of generational, aristocratic, dynastic rot. 
And I think that this documentary gets at it the closest of anything I've seen. It's an incredibly American story. And it's a true crime lens to that story through the eyes of young people. And that's unique. And that's why I like this particular version of the story. So, Kevin, what's at your number seven right now? It's Stolen Youth. So, but you see, but you, you, right, but you see where I am now. Yeah. What's real? What's, what's the truth? I don't know. <laughs> now, this is the story of the so-called Sarah Lawrence College sex cult. I said it's probably a misnomer that it's a sex cult, but it's certainly a coercive control cult. The guy at the center of it is named is Larry Ray. Wild. What? Is wild. Oh, it's wild. <laughs> I thought I got the name wrong. Yeah, no, Larry, he's wild. Yeah, Larry Ray, he's the father of one of these co-eds. And basically, when he moved into their uh, student housing, it began a 10-year influence campaign, of course, of control. This is a really interesting three-part documentary because each of the three parts are very different visually and thematically. The first, which deals sort of like with the colleges, is an awful lot of audio recordings. So that's supplemented with this really interesting animation and those kinds of visuals. The second where it's the post-college years and Larry has gone from sort of this mentor to this real kind of a cult leader, kind of, I would say more of a, of, of a control freak that has everybody under his spell. There's a lot of home video. And then in the third part, it turns into a real-time documentary where the filmmakers are following around the two women who are sort of still left in Larry's orbit as he's going to jail. And we actually get to see the moment when Felicia, one of them, starts to realize uh, she was brainwashed. And it occurs to her mid-sentence answering a question where it's starting to come to her. And then the other person, I think her name was Izzy, is still in the throes of that spell. She's still brainwashed. It was really interesting to see. It was well done in all those different ways, visually and thematically. But that was, a, I thought, a magical moment to sort of capture that the minute the fever breaks, someone can start to get on the other side and repair those relationships. Um, that's why I enjoyed Stolen Youth. Toby, what is it? Your number seven pick for 2023 for television. My number seven is Murder in Bighorn. These cases are not true crime stories to us. These cases are our relatives. This isn't a traditional procedural. What it really is, is it's looking at the Crow Reservation in Montana and how the poverty and environment create a situation where girls and women disappear or are murdered at just an absolutely terrible rate. This isn't just uh, confined to the Crow Reservation, although that's what the documentary focuses on. The uh, disappearance and death rate for Native American women, both in the U.S. and in Canada, and the lack of anything being significantly done about it by you know the federal government should just be a source of deep shame in our country, in my opinion. And I, I felt like this show did a really good job of sort of contextualizing it both within uh, the society on the Crow Reservation, but also taking a look at history and how the federal government's treatment of Indian nations has also played into the sort of dynamics that have led us to this moment where there is this this incredible victimization rate of, of Native uh, girls and women. 
mostly for, I think, addressing this situation in sort of a more uh, holistic way and showing, you know, what, what happens in the past, in fact, what happens in the future uh, and the carryover there. I found it very compelling. Kevin, this is your number 10. Yeah. Usually when we have uh, podcasts or documentaries about uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and, you know, you, you can't have that discussion without Connie Walker. Usually these are podcasts or stories that focus on one case that helps to illustrate the larger issue. I think here what's different and it's done very well is that it looks at individual cases, but the focus I think is largely on the bigger issue. And so you get to see more of a macro view of what is happening with the missing and murdered indigenous women because each of the crimes are different. They just encompass this whole grotesquerie of violence and the way that women are so devalued on the reservation, by men on the reservation and by men not on the reservation. And I thought it was just really eye-opening. It's another great way to tell this story and to spread the word because for too long, this issue has gone unnoticed outside of the reservation. So, Lara, here we are at number six. Let's talk about what on TV came in at number six on your list. Number six on my list was Navalny. If you are killed, if this does happen... What message do you leave behind to the Russian people? Oh, come on, Daniel. No, no way. It's like you're making movie for the case of my death. Now, this was the documentary on HBO Max, or whatever we call it now, that chronicled the investigation into the assassination attempt of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. You know, I remember seeing on the news that was when he was poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent. So this won the Oscar for Best Documentary. It's extremely interesting for me as someone who's only watched this case through like the regular media. This documentary had behind the scenes footage as this was unfolding, footage of him, footage of his family. And that footage was pretty heartbreaking at times. Like when he was in the hospital, like his wife couldn't even take a picture of him. And she kind of explains why. So I think... If you or somebody, you know, if you're interested in kind of staying up on what's happening in the world and staying up on our relationship with Russia and why it is what it is, this documentary is extremely enlightening and really just kind of heartbreaking because I just feel like this guy is going to be doomed. Toby, this is also on your list at number nine. Yeah. So the access that the documentarians have seems pretty total. You get to really see both uh, Navalny himself and then this guy who works for Bellingcat, uh, which is a sort of internet investigation firm, doing their investigation. You also have footage of Navalny, like after he's been poisoned, like suffering and going to this crazy hospital, I think in Siberia, but anyway, way out in the middle of nowhere. So looking back on it while I was getting ready for this, and I hope this isn't too much of a, a spoiler since everybody knows he's in prison. We just said that. But one of the things that is kind of interesting about this is, is that you're watching him and Navalny's sort of a magnetic character and he's got all these big plans or whatever. But what the shocking thing is, is that once he sort of shows up into Russia, like he doesn't even get the customs. He is uh, taken away before he even gets to customs. So in some ways, it's like looking at this guy who's sort of doing all these things but the effect is is really minimal on the on the people who he's trying to affect. 
Anyway, I thought it was a really good insider look on sort of a prominent dissident, what he does and what it, what its effect is and how ultimately he's fairly powerless in the face of the Russian state. Yeah, I like Navalny too. That's why I ended up on my, my number eight. But the questions I came away with were, how would Russia be different under a Navalny rule? And I think the documentary does a little bit of asking those questions. I wish it had a little bit more because I think it gives us a tiny view into how Navalny was also willing to open up his tent into some right-wing nuttiness. And I wish the documentary did a little bit more of that, but it also shows the wackiness of the political landscape that is Russia and what it would take to get into power even if you were a dissident. So it's a super interesting documentary, and obviously uh, Navalny's fate is horrible, but it's some, certainly something you walk away with a lot of questions from. So, Kevin, what is your number six for 2023? It's Scout's Honor. They wanted you to project their image of Market safety. Market this image of safety. That's which, not what you were seeing, though. Uh, that's totally not what I'm seeing. So this is a documentary looking partly through the eyes of a whistleblower from the Boy Scouts of America, Michael Johnson. He was tasked with uh, keeping children safe from sexual predators within the Boy Scouts. We find out that for decades, the Boy Scouts had kept secret files. They called it the pervert files. But they had files and files on scoutmasters who um, had been accused of molesting children. They had files on different incidents. But they kept them secret. They didn't act on them. And uh, recently they uh, were taken to court. It's uh, estimated that they have 82,000 victims over the past several decades. And it leads you to wonder whether or not you can have a crime scandal that is so big that it almost makes it you know impossible to get any kind of justice. You know, they lost a $2 billion settlement, but there's so many victims that those victims will probably not get a large payout for their pain. Uh, and the Boy Scouts will probably go bankrupt and not have to pay any of it and turn those victims into creditors. What is really good about the documentary is not only does it sort of recount the history of these incidents, but it also has the voices of a lot of men of different ages from different generations who were victimized. And as we we said in the last episode that we often don't give due respect to women's physical pain. We don't often give due respect to men's emotional pain. And here we see in visceral terms, some of the men trying to explain and come to terms with what their molestation at the hands of trusted scout leaders, what it did to them. Uh, it was really eye opening. And uh, it goes to show, you know, what happens when an institution does more to protect itself. It set up something that should have been a safeguard. Instead, it was just something to silence and protect itself. All right, Toby Ball, what is number six on your list for TV of 2023? Number six on my list is Savior Complex. I think Renee bought into a fantasy that she was ordained and special and set apart and that she was just naturally a doctor. Uh, so this was a look at a young woman named Renee Bach, who was a homeschooled evangelical woman who ends up setting up a clinic in Uganda. And it starts off as essentially like a, a malnutrition clinic, a, a place where people can come and get food. And then it turns into sort of like a medical clinic, like sort of an alternative to the hospital where 
this woman, Renee, is sort of involving herself in medical procedures, is in touch with doctors in the U.S., where she runs things by them and sometimes overrules the African doctors on their diagnoses or their recommended course of care. So she's like the classic, you know, what we call a white savior. So it's white, often young woman comes to Africa and kind of plays out this personal redemption or savior story for themselves with Africans kind of as the props to help create that story instead of doing things like working with the community. I mean, I think there's a fairly clear case that she could have done more help by giving money to the local hospital rather than opening sort of her own private hospital and so on. I I think it asks a lot of interesting questions, including is it okay for somebody to practice medicine in Africa in a way that they never could in the U.S. if they're a U.S. citizen? You know, the one thing it kind of suffered from, I think, is that the person they have who's sort of a pushback against Renee is this woman who works for a, a group called No White Saviors. She's she's white herself, and she um, maybe she pushes back a little too hard so that sometimes you feel bad for Renee in a way that you absolutely should not. But anyway, I thought it was I thought it was nuanced. It's complicated. That's why that was my number six pick. All right, so we are halfway there. We are at number five. I'm just going to go ahead and give my number five pick, which is Only Murders in the Building, season three. You know what this calls for? Want to make a podcast with me? Oh my God, this is corny. So corny. <laughs> I know it so, is. Yeah, yeah, so corny. But it was, it was good. It's it was fun. cute. It's, yeah, it's cute. Murder? Yeah, murder, yeah. When we last saw our heroes, of course, actor Ben Gilroy, played by Paul Rudd, had died on stage at the premiere of Oliver's new Broadway show. But Ben returns from the hospital only to plummet to his death in the Arconia's elevator. So Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez, of course, are back in season three of Only Murders in the Building. Meryl Streep and Paul Rudd join them. And this season, of course, turns its focus toward Broadway. So... I just think this season is a delight, a delight, a delight, a delight. I'm just going to say, which of the Pickwit triplets did it? I want this show to be on for the rest of my goddamn life. I'm sorry. I know it could get stale. I know it could get old. I know it could get bad. But I love it. I cannot get enough of this cast. Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez, I want you to move in with me. I cannot get enough of you. And this season in particular had great themes around family, around loss, and yes, Steve Martin just being fucking incredible. Laura, I know this was your number five, right? Yeah, I I love this show. This is just such a refreshing break for me from a lot of the heavy true crime documentaries and shows that we watch. And it just has an amazing cast. It is just super fun. I I can't believe I'm saying it's super fun about murder, but it is. (laughs) And the addition of Meryl Streep and Paul Rudd this season, I mean, basically everything you said, Rebecca, there was just so much about this season that I loved and I can't wait for season four. Yeah, this is my number four pick of the year, and each of the seasons, I think someone else has a standout, and I think this was Martin Short's season, although fantastic performances, as always, by Steve Martin and Selena Gomez. You know, there was some talk about, okay, well, the premise of the show is they were making a podcast, and they really pivoted away from the podcast aspect to focus again on musical theater. A, I thought 
it's fine because it's called only murders in the building, not only podcasts in the building. So anything that has to do with that premise, it's funny and it's great. And, and, and that still fits. And they did a great job with the musical theater part. It just really made us literally sing. It warmed my heart and it just uh, made me love these characters even more. And uh, I know they got picked up for season four. And I'm with you, Rebecca. I think that it should go to season 40. And if they have to bring Steve Martin and Martin Short out like, uh, you know, Weekend at Bernie's. Cadavers. Bring them right out. Make them move around. I, Just I would like definitely puppet them. I would definitely watch it. So, Toby, this is number eight on your list, right? Yeah. I, I mean, part of the reason why it's eight is we're on the third season now. And it feels like... Constantly putting it in the top five would be boring. Denying other people a chance, but yeah, I mean it's it's a unique show. I mean, it doesn't look or sound like other TV shows. Uh, obviously, the like super high end elite talent is involved in it, and any chance to watch Steve Martin in something is a chance I will take. Again, it's it's really really good. And if this had been the first season, it would have been like two or three. Kevin, what's number five on your list? My number five pick is BS High. Do I look like a con artist? How you feeling? That's what I'm asking. Do I look like a con artist or do I do like like regular normal person? You look good. Okay, there was a specific question in there. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the story of uh, the fake... High school called Bishop Sycamore High School and their football team that somehow scammed their way onto a nationally televised high school football broadcast uh, with ESPN and got destroyed 58 to nothing. It was sort of a, uh, a hot topic in the moment because it was like found out that the school is, doesn't actually exist. And where does this football team come from? But there's an even deeper story here. We have great access to Ray Johnson, who shows up. You get to see his riz, his charisma. I'm trying to be like the kids. Yes. You get to see his riz, but you have to ask, like, what makes him tick? Um, he calls himself an honest liar. Mm. It's just a really interesting story all the way around. It's more than just that he uh, talked his way onto a football field with uh, a bunch of high school players that were sort of at risk and didn't have other great prospects, but he made victims out of them. And you get to see the the filmmakers first reel him in to open up his heart and then bring him back to confront him with the comments of all the people he scammed. I thought it was a really great way of presenting the issue and then, you know, confronting somebody who didn't deliver on what they promised. And we always promise to deliver great podcasts at Ooh. Patreon. Oh, business to, section. Yeah, if you go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media, no BS, you'll get all sorts of great podcasts. You can get podcast episodes of Crime Writers on early and ad free, but you also can get the Crime Writers on after show. If you liked all of our picks here, We've got other great recommendations in this week's After Show, stuff that we didn't cover on Crime Writers On this year. We've got Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast, so you got to get your books for uh, 2024. Laura Bricker's got plenty of mysteries coming up. Laura, can you just give us a tease of of what is what the photo you sent me is just a, a fucking amazing. Tell me about your your next episode. So the next episode is an investigation into who is hanging Slim Jims and cheese from the trees in Swayze Parkway in Exeter and why. Yeah, There's a lot of theories out there. We're going to get to the bottom of it. 
somebody recently spotted it, posted it in our local community forum on Facebook, and people had a lot of really like naive answers, like, "Well, maybe they're putting out food for the homeless," and I'm like, "Slim Jims on trees? <laughs> Jesus um, Christ! I don't think so." So anyway, it's very mysterious. I don't know what's going on, but there's been a lot of chatter about it. So I'm going to get to the bottom of it. You know, uh, Laura Bricker and Josh Baker have never been seen in the same place at the same That's right. time. Josh so it's Baker very possible. is climbing on top of burnt out buses to get into bombed out buildings. And Laura Bricker is investigating Slim Jims and trees. It's exactly the same thing. It's totally, totally yeah. the same thing. Yeah. So if you want to know uh, things like behind the scenes, you want to see our uh, photos. Our of other Pat picks of the week. for 2023. Yeah. And the complete list of our top uh, 10 picks here from each of us. You can just sign up for our newsletter at crimewriterson.com. Just Slip us your email address. You'll get that. Slide into our DMs. Slide in our DMs and you'll get that uh, every Thursday. All right. So, Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Amy Hamrick and Andrea Higgins. Amy, Andrea. Bless you. Bless you guys. Bless you. If you want to say you're the patron saints of the year, you can say that because it's the last one. Love you guys. Love you. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you to everyone who supports us, everyone who doesn't. And thanks for muscling through the business section. I think it's time to get back to the show. What do you think, Kevin? Let's fade that music out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Moving on. It's time for my number four pick for the best TV of the year. And my number four pick is Shiny Happy People. That's right. It is the four-part documentary about the Duggars. I don't really like to even talk about it because it's not something that I'm proud of. I look back and I think, you know, my parents did such an amazing job. If I hadn't felt obligated to, like, one, do it for, like, the sake of the show, and two, do it for, like, the sake of my parents, I wouldn't have done it. I loved this series because it's not just about the Duggars and about their son, who ends up being, of course, a pedophile who committed, you know, sex crimes against his sisters. Uh, It's also about the Institute of Basic Life Principles, that radical religious organization that espoused obedient children and subservient wives. I don't see the problem with that. (laughs) Listen... This documentary is about whiteness. It's about white supremacy. It's about a political movement that has shaped 2023 America. When people talk about what is happening in politics right now, when people talk about the America they don't recognize, when people talk about forces they don't understand, they are talking about what we see in shiny, happy people. You know, it's funny because we talk about how 
We should be covering underrepresented communities. We should. We should be covering more, you know, stories about people with voices we don't hear. We should. We should also be covering whiteness more. We should. This is an incredible documentary that covers whiteness in the best possible way. It shows the power of whiteness. It shows how whiteness has come to power again and again and again and again. Religion like this needs to be covered more. Misogyny like this needs to be covered more. This documentary does everything so, so well, including the intersection of the quiverful movement and American politics. I don't know. I just really liked it. Uh, Toby, you also put it pretty up high on your list, right? Yeah, I had this at number three. So I kind of came into this with no clue who the Duggars were, other than I'd seen them on like the cover of magazines by the checkout line and that they had a boatload of kids. It was pretty stunning to watch just how far out there their family is and what their actual lifestyle represents and the fact that that's kind of mainstreamed to the point where you just see their faces like fairly frequently on these national magazines about what's going on with them. I mean, there's just so many things that kind of come up. One thing that really stuck with me was that they have this homeschool curriculum, which I think is 37 booklets and they, they kind of show them. And then one of the exercises they have, they call them eye traps So they show like a woman like dressed in like 1940s garb and it's like circle the eye trap. So it's supposed to be what's like getting guys sexual attention. And it's like circle her shins and her wrists and like these earrings she's wearing. It's just, it's bizarre. It's like it's from a different planet. But anyway, this is, as Rebecca was saying, it's a political force. It's not reported on in a way that I think is genuine and gives it the importance that it needs in the popular media. So people like me have no clue what's going on, and except I watched this uh, documentary. I was tempted to put this as my as my top, uh, but then things intervened. Yeah. So I love this documentary. I felt yeah, like it was really good. Like there's a straight line between this family and like Lauren Boebert. Like it's just like incredible. Yeah. Like it's it's so so good. Let's move on to number three, because we have, in fact, reached the top three in our countdown. My number three pick for 2023 is, drumroll, Kevin. The Diplomat. Billy. I'm just saying it's hard to imagine. She can't imagine it. The president is asking you to serve as ambassador to the United Kingdom. We have a plane waiting. We'd like you to get on it. It is an honor and a privilege. That's more like it. Carrie Russell stars in this Netflix trending drama series. It's been number like in the top 10 all year. The Diplomat. She plays Kate Weiler, who has to employ her skills as a foreign service staffer to work with her British counterparts and avert a war. She also has to negotiate her own domestic relations with a sexy foreign minister and her own meddling husband played by the awesome Rufus Sewell who remains devoted to her. So what I love about this show is that it is sexy and fun and to me it's most important is it's surprising. A show like this could be hackneyed and stupid and poorly written but it's not and Carrie Russell is one of my all-time favorite actors. It is so great to see a part written for her uh, that is worthy of her range of abilities, physical abilities, comedic abilities, dramatic abilities. 
I just love the show a lot. It's got tons of location porn. I love a lot about it. Toby, I was very surprised to see this show made your list, right? At number 10? It's fun to watch. You know, it mixes some stuff that I thought was really smart with some stuff that's just absolutely completely ridiculous and very <laughs> soapy. But that can be fun. So, yeah, I, I you know, it was one of those things where I was always psyched to watch the next episode, which uh, should count for something. Okay, we are at number two, guys. I want to know what you all thought were the second best things you saw on television in 2023. Laura Bricker, let's begin with you. What was your number two pick? My number two pick was Navajo Police Class 57. What's the expectation that we're going to graduate? How many? Sir, 14, sir. 14. And 14 is not enough to provide any kind of decent relief to the bodies that are working the streets right now. This was the documentary that followed a group of recruits over the course of a year as they made their way through the Navajo Police Training Academy. And then when they went out on the field where they had to deal with crime, trying to keep their community safe and keeping their community together. I loved this documentary. And the way that they were doing this was they were using their COVID money trying to actually fund getting up to a level of police that was adequate to handle the demands of what was happening out there. So this was one of my favorite things that I've watched in a long time. It was an issue that was unique. There was tremendous scene setting right off the bat. You see this old horse out on the range, some cactuses. It leads in in a way that was compelling, but also absolutely heartbreaking. It was like a fascinating look at a very real issue of policing in this area in terms of they just don't have enough police to keep up with the calls that they have there. And it was really sad, but it was definitely one of my favorite things that we've watched this year. Yeah, it was my number nine uh, in large part because it showed how the system of policing, period, is just so weird. And when you try to put that system of policing into a community that already has so many problems, it just highlights even how weirder the American system of policing is. I don't know. I just there were many, many things to love about this documentary, and I would recommend that everybody watch it. Toby Ball, what was number two on your list this year? Number two for me was reality. Okay, well, the reason we're here today is that we have a search warrant for your house. Okay. All right. Uh, do you know what this might be about? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. This is about uh, possible mishandling of classified information. This is a really interesting concept, which is that, so it's called reality because it's about reality winner who I don't think she's still in prison, but she was in prison for quite a while for stealing or taking out of her secure location, some secret documents. So what they've done is basically take the transcripts of what was actually said when the FBI showed up at her apartment and talked to her and sort of interrogated her and came up with the information they needed to arrest her. So it's just verbatim, those transcripts. And it sort of rests on how good the actors are and kind of delivering it and making it seem natural. And they're all excellent. Sydney Sweeney, I thought, was incredible. And I'd, I'd only seen her in um, White Lotus before, uh, but she, she was great in this. It's really interesting in showing both sort of the pressures that these agents put her under very subtly 
and then her sort of dawning realization, like at first she's really like concerned about what's going to happen with her dogs. If she's arrested, who's going to feed her dogs and stuff like she, she doesn't quite get the gravity of where she is. And then you kind of watch her, you can see her trying to make these calculations about how can I make this as, uh, as innocent seeming as possible. And then her realization that they just have her. I just thought it was really compelling to see how these things actually work and how agents are able to elicit these confessions for people just over time, very kind of calmly until it gets to the moment and where they're just like, look, this is the deal. This is what we know. This is what we're going to do. And Sydney Sweeney just does a tremendous job. So in, the psychology of reality is, is all this stuff served on on her. Hmm. So Laura, you had this at your number four, right? I did. And I will echo everything that Toby said. Uh, for me, it was the unique way that they came up with the dialogue and also Sydney Sweeney's performance. in this was just amazing. So Kevin, what is your number two for this year? My number two pick is Netflix's victim suspect. Was there a point like with the investigation where you felt like the police just, you knew they weren't believing you and... The detective told me he didn't hold you down, that's about rape. She filed the charges against me before my rape kit or anything else came in. Now, I know, Rebecca, that you overlooked this. This was supposed to be on your list. I was 100% sure I thought this was on my list. No, no, no. The well, fuck, Rebecca Lavoie? I was sure. I wrote to you and I was like, isn't this on my list? No, this happens with a lot. There's so many good things here. But let me tell you about Victim Suspect to remind you. This is almost like a documentary within a documentary. We follow investigative reporter Rachel DeLeon as she looks into the pattern of False recantations. This happens when a victim of sexual abuse goes to report the crime to police and they don't believe her. But they also go to the point where they end up baiting them into uh, recanting their allegation of sexual assault and then go the extra distance to even charge them with filing a false report. And some of them actually serve jail time for this. And this was very powerful because we got to hear the stories of these women who became victims of, guess what, the read technique. When investigators are treating victims and questioning them with the same techniques they use on criminal suspects. If you're a hammer, then every person that comes in is a nail. And so they are um, not only re-victimizing these women, but they are letting uh, perpetrators not only get off scot-free, but also sort of uh, rewarding them by proclaiming publicly that this woman who accused them of this crime is a liar. And it plays into a lot of different, not just stereotypes, but preconceptions that people have about women and false accusations. And this is a kind of weird overcorrection, but something that happens across the country. And there's a great scene with this detective named Detective Otto from Connecticut who helped get a quote unquote confession for a uh, false rape report, a very highly publicized one. You know, the thing that the cops do is just let the sexual assault victim talk until they say something that sounds uh, funny or contradictory. And the reporter, Rachel, just lets the cop do the same thing. Talk until he gives up the fact that he just uses a ruse. He lies 
to um, the sexual assault victims who then, when they realize that they're not going to be believed, they just want to get out of the situation and they end up falsely incriminating themselves. It's just unforgettable. And it's a topic that I think that we will remember long after we forget the names of all the people involved in Rachel's investigation. It's just unforgettable. All right, Laura, I know this was your number three. Anything you wanted to add about victim suspect? I mean, this was just super rage inducing um, in terms of victims becoming suspects and how it how it played out. I don't have anything else to add. Kevin covered it well, but it was just a super rage inducing. Like you watched it and you're like, how the fuck can this even be happening? And it is. Now it's time to reveal our selections for the very best television of the year. Kevin, yeah. what was your number one pick for 2023? And why do you get to be the one to talk about it? Oh, uh, life isn't fair, Rebecca. It's not fair. It's not fair. You'll get your chance. No, I won't. Yes, you will. My uh, number one pick for 2023 is jury duty. Oh, uh, jury duty. Just as you considered all the evidence against the defendant during his trial and decided he wasn't liable, well, we've considered all the evidence presented during your trial. And we've decided that you, Ronald Gladden, are a hero. This is an elaborate hoax, uh, a Truman Show-esque reality uh, endeavor where a guy by the name of Ronald Gladden thinks he has been chosen for a documentary about his jury duty, about a uh, civil complaint, but really the entire thing is a setup. Um, It's an elaborate hoax with actors, everybody from the defendant to the judge to the other jurors or actors, including... Actor James Marsden playing himself. Everyone is in on the joke, including the audience. But what ends up happening is that this story, instead of becoming one big farce where Ronald should be annoyed at all of these characters, the things that they're doing, um, the ridiculous situations that they all get themselves into, he shows kindness and humanity. The narrative about what is happening in the trial plays on its own without sort of any behind-the-scenes kind of thing. You don't have to be invested in the setup, the real-life setup, to enjoy the first level of, of the narrative. And in the end, sort of the last episode, they rewind the clock and they show you everything that was happening behind the scenes to make this elaborate show work. It was an amazing high wire act. It could have failed spectacularly, but it ends up with a really great ending. For me, it was life affirming. There are so many quality things that we watched this year. Why was this number one? I don't know. For me, it just rang out and and made me feel good about life again, about people and humanity. Ronald was just such a fantastic person. They gave him the opportunity to be a hero and every chance he had, he took it. I just loved jury duty. This is my number two show for the year, and I loved this show because of the final episode where they show how they did it. And I'll say the thing that it has in common with you didn't see nothing is they rolled with their lead character, right? They made changes to the production based on what Ronald did. But I think the secret sauce of this whole thing, frankly, is James Marsden. Here you have a celebrity who's been in some huge franchise films who wasn't willing to be cruel, which you have seen the interviews that he was doing, but he his fame 
provided enough of a diversion where the tricks worked. Like, it was just a perfect fucking setup. Like, you think this would not have worked if there hadn't been, like, a famous enough person there. The people who designed this game designed it perfectly. And the other layer is it shows the value of doing your civic duty in a way that I, in particular, appreciate. As a former four-person of a jury... Fucking do your civic duty, man. And this show shows you why. Laura Brick is also on your list at number nine. Do you want to say why? Yeah, it was uh, much of the same thing that you guys have said. But as somebody that works in the criminal justice field, seeing jury duty, it was portrayed comically here, obviously, but it was portrayed authentically. And I think that really came through. And I just loved this show. So Toby Ball, what was it? your number one television pick for the year? My number one television pick for 2023 was Great Photo, Lovely Life. And I don't know the answer to it, but it seemed like that some of these little girls, for example, would almost throw themselves at me. Now, that might sound a little stupid, but they wanted to learn things and they were experimental. They want, you know, and to me, it was too much of an open temptation. So I don't know why I'm talking about this because I know Rebecca is going to gush more than I am, but I'll lay down the basics. This show is about a photographer named Amanda Mustard who confronts the legacy and past of her pedophile grandfather. It's a fascinating look at generational trauma, uh, how families avoid facing the reality of such a destructive force in their midst. It's very nuanced. It's very brave uh, for Amanda, uh, for her mom as well, who comes off as a very complicated, I guess I should say a a person who's in a very complicated situation as being both sort of victim and enabler. Uh, It must have been a very difficult uh, show to make for Amanda and her mom and her sister. You know, and I I think uh, Rebecca will talk about Comparisons to uh, Murder at Middle Beach, but it is a similar idea of somebody going back and sort of confronting the demons of their childhood that have even sort of continued on into their adulthood. I think there's a lot of little side observations that are made, including the type of Christianity that seems to be prevalent amongst her family and people they kind of associate with, sort of encourages forgiveness of offenders rather than trying to hold them to account. So anyway, I, I just thought this, this was tremendous. It was the last thing we reviewed this year. So I had to kind of rearrange my top 10 list to accommodate it, but that's a price I was willing to pay in order to watch this documentary. Laura Brickers is also your number one for the year. How come? What I liked about this is obviously it's very raw, it's very honest, and I think that it it really gave a sort of very accurate portrayal through the grandfather of what it actually is like if you are a pedophile and you feel like that is okay. And it didn't really make excuses for it, it just showed him honestly talking about his thoughts. And it also showed the role that having somebody like that in a family that kept secrets, that didn't talk about anything, 
how you had sort of this systemic family cycle that was very, very hard to break out of. So I just thought it it gave such an, just such an honest, accurate portrayal of this issue that we really haven't seen to that level. And Amanda putting herself out there to be the one to tell that story was very remarkable. So Kevin, this is number three on your list. Yeah, I thought this was fantastic. This was our, our, our year's uh, bracket buster. Uh, we had already come with our, our, our come up with our top ten list, and this was the last thing that we saw. Yep. And we realized, wait a minute, we've got to move some things around. So it'd be interesting to see what everybody's number eleven pick is, because that was our previous number ten. Anyway, I agree with everything you said. It's remarkable. I think, and I can kind of remember what I said because it was just last week. One of the things that stuck with me is the casual monstrosity that is this man and the generational trauma that he has inflicted. I love Amanda. I wish that she was she lived in New England and we could go get a beer. She's like my Johans for documentaries. She's amazing uh, and I admire what she she did. This was a really difficult interesting look at the issue and it also just goes to show why it's so difficult for families to deal with it, even when you have a family that is remarkably open to it, that even when it, when the bill comes due, it is sometimes hard to pay. Yeah, this is my number one of the year as well. Imagine you're a child and you know that you have some shitty family secret and then you grow up and you become a journalist who wants to make a documentary. And this is what you do with that secret power. Madison Hamburg did it with Murder on Middle Beach, and it was spectacular. And now we're seeing it with Great Photo, Lovely Life, and it's like that times 10. This is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, period, period, period. One of the things I did not point out in my lengthy review of it when we did it at the end of the year, which I would encourage you to listen to, it's one of my favorite episodes of Crime Writers On we did this year, is that one of the things this documentary points out is that women bear the brunt of generational family trauma in every family. Amanda interviews several male members of her family, and they're all like, yes, I knew this was going on. I didn't know what to do. And then that's the end of the interview. (laughs) And it's the women who participate. It's the women who carry the water. It's the women who have the difficult conversation. And it's the women who pick up the camera and make the fucking documentary about the thing. This is just an incredible, incredible story about systemic sexual abuse and molestation. And it is the most common crime in the world. And I cannot believe there's more content about it. And this is the most mesmerizing documentary I've seen in a long time. And I just think everyone in the world should watch it. Okay, so if you want to see each of our complete top 10 lists for either television or podcast, check out our show notes or go to our website at crimewriterson.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Kevin, you're also going to be emailing these lists out, correct? Absolutely. I'm so excited about that. That's going to do it for us for right now. But before we go, Lara Bricker, I know you don't feel great, but do we have a cat of the week this week? We have some dogs for you, Rebecca, this week. My favorite animal, Laura. I know. They come from Shannon Parker Havenhill in our Facebook discussion group. Oh, yeah. The dogs of your favorite place, Rebecca, Isla Muharis. Isla Isla Muharis. Isla Muharis. So the Isla Animals for Cat of the Week. We recently visited our vacation on our vacation, they visited to drop off some supplies and they went to a dog rescue and her future daughter-in-law in the attached photos was having a wonderful time with all the puppies. 
The puppies were named Enchilada, Chipotle, Taquito, Burrito, Oakley, Hazel, and Shelly. Hmm. No Chalupa? <laughs> yes, no Chalupa. But I always think about when I was on St. Thomas and my family was horrified with me because I was trying to like bring home cats and all this stuff. So just because you go on vacation doesn't mean you need to give up your animal rescue desires. So nope. Shannon, I think you need to go back and get one of those dogs. All right, Laura Bricker, if folks want to pitch you their vacation dogs or vacation rescue visits to be pet of the week, how can they find you on social media? Well, they can find me at Laura Bricker or post it up in one of our discussion groups. Okay, so Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you on social media. How can you be found? At Toby Ball and H. What about you, Kevin? How can you be found? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me everywhere, like Twitter or Instagram, and see my dogs, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And please join our incredible community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular Facebook page. That's where you can find the group by looking at the pinned post. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Look at the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the wonderful Livy Burdett. Happy New Year, Livy. The executive producer of this fine program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, The Closet, in our New Hampshire basement where we still subscribe to seven streaming services because there's nothing good on network TV. Except Abbott Elementary. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Just uh, something that is not replicable. Replicable. It's not replicable. I won't say that. I can't get my tongue around. It's a... Duplicative. Duplicative. All right. <laughs> uh, you can't do that again. <laughs>